Um, as Park Community Church, we've been around for a little over 30 years now, and throughout the entirety of that time, we've strived to be a church that's in the city and, and for the city. Uh, but in a lot of ways, what that means has changed and has shifted for us as a church. And in a lot of ways, that change and shift has come through the work that you all are doing up here in Rogers Park. That in a lot of ways, you guys are pioneers, uh, and you're leading on the edges, and you're leading in a way that is changing what that vision looks like for the entirety of our church. So I just want to say thank you to that. Uh, thank you for that. And, and also, just keep up the good work. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me here with you this morning. Um, there was one time I was preaching at another church, and uh, I was talking to the pastor beforehand. I was saying, I, I hope this goes well. And uh, he was saying, I'm so excited to have you. And I was, I was just saying, well, I, ho- I hope you feel that way afterwards, too. And, uh, and what he said was, was, don't worry. Either it'll be great, and, and they'll thank me for bringing you in. This was a wonderful experience. Or if it's terrible, it'll just make them appreciate me that much more. <laughs> so... So either way, I hope this is a blessing to you all this, this morning. <laughs> but if you would, if you'd go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, or navigate on your devices to Romans chapter 7. And if you're on one of the house Bibles, it should be, I think, on page 550, 550, but Romans chapter 7. And while you're getting there, I want to throw out a quick question. When you're sick... Are you a good patient? When you're sick and you get prescribed a treatment plan, are you a good patient? Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 14. It reads like this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Amen. Amen. So my first semester in college, I came down with a cold, with the, the congested head and the stuffed and runny nose, which isn't all that out of the ordinary because it's, it's a common cold. Uh, but the thing is, this one in particular turned into a bit of a story and a memory for me because I decided to test out a theory. Because it was my first semester away from home, first time kind of being out uh, on my own, and I was having fun, and I was enjoying life, and and I didn't feel like slowing down to let my body catch up and to fight off this cold. I didn't feel like slowing down. So I came up with this theory that basically, regardless of how you live, a head cold only lasts like a week or two. That that no matter what you do, it's really just going to run its course, and it'll be gone in two weeks And so it doesn't matter if you do the things you're supposed to. It doesn't matter if you drink water and stay hydrated. It doesn't matter if you get plenty of sleep. It's just going to run its course. And so I just kept living life as usual. I didn't worry about sleep. I didn't worry about staying hydrated. I kept up with my active social life. And uh, and so I just kind of continued to enjoy that college life, testing out this theory. And it turns out my theory was completely wrong. 
Because while most colds only last a week or two, this thing took over a month. And, and it was literally the worst head cold I've ever had in the entirety of my life. That I couldn't breathe out of my nose. The pressure in my head was terrible. And instead of kind of lingering and getting better, starting to go away, it just kept getting worse as week after week went by. Until eventually the symptoms were so bad and I was so miserable that I was literally forced to rest. That, that I was forced to, in a sense, be a good patient. I was forced to drink water and to take it easy. And when I did, I started to recover. And finally, I felt better. But I learned something about this, uh, about sickness. And it's that the extent to which we follow a treatment plan has a pretty drastic effect on how long sickness lingers. The extent to which we follow a treatment plan, which in this case was just a healthy lifestyle, has a drastic effect on how long and how severely a sickness lingers. And that matters for our passage this morning because what we'll see as we look into it is that if we were to narrow it to just a single idea, it would be this. Sin is the sickness that lingers. Sin is the sickness that lingers. And as followers of Christ, we have been given medicine for this. And we even have a treatment plan. But the degree to which we follow that has a drastic effect on the severity of the symptoms that we experience. And we'll jump into that and we'll unpack it more together. But before we do, let's just take a moment and let's pray together. Father, we come before you as a community. We thank you for this time together. It, it really is a joy to be able to gather together like this and, and sing songs in praise of you, to spend time in prayer together as a community and to look into your word. Father, we know that it's your word that changes us and that shapes us as followers of Christ and that gives us hope in the midst of this life. And so we ask that as we're gathered together here today to look into your word, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it and you would give us clarity around what it is that you're teaching us in this passage of Romans chapter 7. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to work with a table of contents this morning as we're, as we're working our way through this. And this is going to be our three points. The fine print, still sick, and our treatment plan. The fine print, still sick, and our treatment plan. That's where we're going this morning. So let's jump in with the first point, the fine print. So I, I kind of want to revisit the flow of Romans as a whole within this point, just to get a good grip on what it is we're diving into here in chapter 7. Because what we're looking into... Uh, is actually a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. It's not an easy one to understand, but I think it's actually the flow of the book as a whole up until this point that helps us to understand what it is that Paul is actually talking about. And so that's why we're going to jump back into it. And so this is the flow. Back in chapter 1, in verses 16 and 17, we got Paul's thesis for the whole letter, for the whole letter of Romans. And he said this, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the entire letter is about the gospel. All throughout, it's all about the gospel. And Paul is unfolding different aspects of the gospel throughout the entirety of this letter. And this is what the flow is, these movements here. The first one that he takes is... Uh, from, from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. And in that movement, he shows how all of humanity, including both Jews and Gentiles, how we're all under sin, that all have rebelled against God, and we all stand before God as guilty. 
Or another way of putting it is that if sin is a sickness, it's a sickness that every single one of us has. That nobody is exempt from it. That not a single person hasn't been touched by this. Sin is a sickness that every single one of us has. And it's deadly. That's what he establishes from 1.18 to 3.20. But then from chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 4, he provides and even argues for what the cure is to this sickness. Which is the gospel. It's the gospel. But at that point, he's arguing about one specific aspect of the gospel. Something called justification. Which we explored throughout those chapters. And we saw that justification, a way that we can think about it, is that it's like a transaction. That before God, on our own, we are sinful and guilty. But Jesus, Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He took on our humanity and lived a life of righteousness, fulfilling the law, and then dying in our place and for our sins, taking the punishment upon himself that we deserved. And so it was a transaction. He takes our sin and the punishment that we deserve because of it, and we get his righteousness. And so legally, because of that transaction, we stand before God justified. Even when we mess up, even when we continue to struggle and get tripped up with sin, we are justified before God because of what Jesus has done. That's what Paul explained from 321 to the end of chapter 4. And that's the cure for our sickness. That's the cure for our sin. So when God sees us, he doesn't see us as sick anymore. He doesn't see us as infected or as diseased. We are righteous And we have a clean bill of health. And that's kind of a basic gospel message. That we're all sick. But by grace, through faith in Jesus, we can be declared well. And we can receive salvation because of that. But notice that Paul doesn't end the letter right there. He doesn't just kind of fold it up and stamp it and seal it and send it off after chapter 4. He keeps writing. Because while justification is a fundamental piece of the gospel, Paul still has a whole lot more explaining and unfolding to do throughout this letter. Because justification, it it explains how the gospel saves us. And then he goes on after this to show how the gospel continues to change us as followers of Christ and continues to shape us throughout our lives. And so he keeps writing to explore that. And in this next section that follows, chapters 5 through 8, Paul's laying out the positive side effects of taking this cure called the gospel. He's explaining the benefits that we receive when we take this medicine, the side effects that are positive. And he's laid out a bunch of them already, that we're dead to sin and alive to God now, that we're, we're not slaves to sin anymore, but now we're slaves to righteousness, that we've died to the law and no longer are we held captive to it. We're free in Christ. All of these things result from the gospel. But then right here in chapter 7, what Paul starts to explore and what, what he starts to get to here isn't so much the benefits or the positive side effects of this medicine called the gospel. What Paul is exploring here is basically the fine print. This is kind of like the part in medicine commercials with the happy music, with with, with the families who are having a picnic at the park and everything is great, and there's a narrator with a cheery voice reading off a list of potentially uh, terrifying side effects. (laughs) That's what chapter 7 is. And it's it's not that the gospel has negative side effects, but it's that this medicine, it doesn't change everything right away. Sin was a sickness that every one of us had. And in the gospel, we've received the cure, but it's not an instantaneous healing. Sin lingers. And so in terms of justification, that legal declaration before God, we are clear. We're righteous. We have a clean bill of health. And even when we mess up, we're good with God. 
But in our experience, our heads are still congested, our noses are still runny, and we still have a barking cough. It's not as bad as it was. We are more healthy, but the reality is we're still sick. And that's what the fine print has to say. And as we jump into the details themselves, it's important for us to remember that flow of the letter. Because one of the things we see is that the content of chapter 7 is actually really similar to a lot of what Paul has already said in chapter 3, where he was driving home the point that every single person is sick, that every single person is condemned under the law. Chapter 7 and chapter 3 actually sound a whole lot like each other. But what the flow shows us is that Paul isn't just making the same point over again. In chapter 3, he was trying to show the need for the gospel, that we are all, in fact, sick. It was a diagnosis. But then he presents that cure, and by the time we get to chapter 7, we already know about it. And, And we've drank the medicine. We've got our flu shot. We're good to go. Or so we think. Because that's actually what Paul doubles back to talk about. That's why he brings up the law and why he brings up sin again. In chapter 7, to explain that reality that even though we've taken the medicine, our sickness hasn't fully left us yet. We're still sick. And that's why what this passage is teaching us is that sin is a sickness that lingers. It didn't just go away at the first drop of medicine. It's been injured. It's been weakened. And we are more healthy now. But still, we continue to fight and to struggle with it. Because sin is a sickness that lingers. And that's what the fine print is telling us broadly. But now we're going to jump into it with a magnifying glass, go through it with a little bit more detail, and see exactly what Paul is saying here in chapter 7. And with that, we're going to move into the second point, um, still sick. Still sick. And Paul starts out this passage, the way he begins this fine print in verse 7 is by asking this question. What then shall we say? That the law is sin. Is the law sin? And his answer is no, by no means. But our question should be, why is he asking that question in the first place about whether or not the law is sin? And the answer is because of what he just said before this in verse 5, two verses earlier, where he says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Their sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law made them worse. And if that's true, the question follows pretty naturally. Does that mean that the law is sin then? If the law resulted in more sin, does that mean that the law is bad? That's Paul's question. And we know that his answer is no. But this is what his argument is here. Let's just throw up the whole thing here and we'll keep it up as we work through this together. He says this, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So down in verse 11 at the bottom, he says that sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, through the law, and it deceived him and killed him through it. And now when he says commandment, we see that he's talking about one of the Ten Commandments, the one that specifically says, you shall not covet. You shall not desire that which belongs to another. And Paul's saying that when this law came into being, it provided an opportunity for sin, that somehow sin used this law to arouse the sinful passions within people even more. 
And what's fascinating about this is that Paul chooses this commandment specifically out of the ten. Because maybe more than any other, this one reveals how sin's strategy actually works. What sin's battle tactics are. Because coveting isn't like the rest of the actions the Ten Commandments are about. It's not like stealing or murder where it's pretty cut and dry whether it's happened. Coveting is just a desire that we entertain. And the nature of it is wanting something that doesn't belong to us. Entertaining a desire for something or someone that belongs to somebody else. And notice that when Paul calls attention to sin here, he specifically says that it deceived him. That was the opportunity it seized through the law, the opportunity to deceive. And I think Paul chose coveting here as an example because in coveting, we see that deception more clearly than almost anywhere else. Because in coveting, we're dreaming and we're even fantasizing about something that's not ours. Something that we believe will bring us joy and will bring us life and will bring us satisfaction. In coveting, we entertain the idea that disobedience is actually more satisfying and brings more life. And because of that, just as the passage says in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Because even though the law said you shall not, sin suggested what's the law trying to hide? What is the law holding out on? What is it trying to keep you from? Sin suggested that the law is telling you no. And if you listen, you're naive And you're a fool because you're just missing out for no reason. Because that's where joy is. That's where satisfaction is. That's where life is in disobedience. And the more we entertain those suggestions, the more our desire is stirred within us and the stronger our coveting gets until we step across the line. But instead of receiving life as sin promised, we get death. And we're left in ruin, in misery, and it destroys us. That's what sin does. And Paul's point here is actually that sin is the thing that's doing this. It's not the law. The law isn't the problem because it wasn't the law that deceived us. It wasn't the law that led us to death. The law was honest. Sin is what deceived us. And because of that, Paul can affirm that the law is good. And he can say this in verse 12. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not bad. But this does raise the question, why then did God give the law at all? If it was clear that sin would take advantage of it and use it to bring about death, why did God give the law at all? And Paul raises that question himself in verse 13, essentially saying, did that which is good then bring death to me? And once again, his answer is no. By no means. And this is his argument in verse 13. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. The law is good, but sin used it to produce death in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It's like the law was a trap for sin. That it lured it out and sin took the bait. Because when sin seized the opportunity that the law provided, sin was revealed for what it is. With startling clarity. And it became undeniable that the thing that brings death is sin. That the fundamental problem of humanity is nothing other than sin. And that the human heart is held in bondage to it. That it was sick. 
And now a lot of that, it's not brand new information because Paul explained the role of the law like this back in chapter 3 where he showed, he showed there as well that it functions like a thermometer, that it shows us that we're sick. It points out the sin within us. And so this isn't entirely brand new. But where Paul goes next here, this is different. And it reads almost like a diary of someone who's been sick and is going through, and they're still continuing to be sick, and they're going through a treatment plan. And in this entry, it's like they're having a bad day. It's like they're having an especially difficult day in describing that experience, that that he's struggling with sin, with this lingering sickness, and he's tired with it. And he's just frustrated. And this is what he writes. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want. It's what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I talk about a frustrated diary entry. Paul's upset, and he's having a bad day, and what he's saying here is that I'm still sick. And you can see it in verse 18 and in verse 20 again, where he points out that sin still dwells within me. This infection, this sickness, it hasn't been fully wiped out yet. It's still here, because sin is a sickness that lingers. And these are the symptoms that Paul is experiencing as a follower of Christ. He says, I don't even understand my own actions. I don't get what I'm doing. I don't do the things I want to, but instead, I do the very things that I hate, and I can't stand it. You can see the frustration in his words, and the truth is, if we're honest, this is familiar. We've all been there, and actually, we end up there a whole lot more than we'd like to. We end up there quite a bit, and it's because we're still sick. Sin still dwells within us because sin is a sickness that lingers, and its symptoms are incredibly frustrating. And the truth is, it is something that we'll continue to struggle with for the rest of our lives. We never will shake it this side of heaven. But thankfully, it can get better. And thankfully, there is hope. And thankfully, there is a treatment plan. Which brings us to the third point, our treatment plan. In the final paragraph, in verses 21 to 25, Paul summarizes the situation where he says, we continue to be sick and to struggle with sin. And then it seems like he actually cries out in anguish over this situation. And this is what he says, wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And honestly, if this wasn't the Bible, because sometimes when we know it's the Bible, we think that, okay, I've got the automatic Sunday school answer. I know the answer to that question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But if you take it out of its context and just just think for a moment what you would expect the answer to that question to be, and you would expect silence, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you take that and make it a scene in Hamlet or something, you get silence. You don't get an answer. 
But thankfully, this isn't Hamlet. Thankfully, this is the Bible. And a lot of times that Sunday school answer happens to be right on the money. Because Paul says this in verse 25. Who will deliver us? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which means there is a deliverance. There is a healing. There is a hope. And the answer is the gospel. The answer is the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because in that gospel, we find our medicine. And we find our treatment plan in the good news of Jesus Christ. And essentially, as we move into chapter 8, for the next several weeks, what we'll see is that our treatment plan consists of the gospel. Of the gospel as the Spirit of God administers the gospel to us like our medicine. That the, that the Spirit of God is like our physician and our nurse. And that the Spirit of God is handling our dosages. That it's giving us our medicine. He's checking our vitals. And he's keeping us on the up and up. That the Spirit of God is bringing us healing through the gospel. And so our treatment plan is to walk according to the Spirit's guidance. To live according to the direction and the treatment plan, the treatment plan that the Spirit of God gives us. And as we do that, as we work to root out the sin in our lives, as we grow in our affection for God, as we deepen in our understanding of the Bible and of prayer and of the gospel, we come to see that more and more we're becoming like Jesus in terms of his character and his righteousness, and we're being healed. By the Spirit of God, we are being healed. And we're going to explore that a whole lot more in chapter 8. But the thing is, we're still in chapter 7 here. And we're still in the fine print. And the fine print tells us that we're still sick. And I think that's an important point for us to sit with for a minute. Because I think our tendency sometimes can be to think of the church almost like it's a health club. That that's our paradigm for the church. Like we're supposed to walk in here and we're supposed to be healthy and we're supposed to be perfect, and we're supposed to have everything put together, that that's what it should be like, that, that the church is almost like a spiritual Peloton ad, right? that everybody just looks perfect. <laughs> but when that's our expectation, when we see our symptoms starting to flare up, our first response is to hide it. Because when we see our sickness flaring up, that means we're not perfect. Right? That means we, we don't measure up, we don't have everything put together, and that we don't fit. That we, we can't measure up in this perfect health club. When in reality, rather than a health club, the church is a whole lot more like a hospital. Because when you walk in the doors of a hospital, they expect you to be sick. They expect that you need healing because otherwise you wouldn't be there. And the same is true of the church. We're all sick. Even those of us who've been walking with Jesus for decades, we're still sick. And we continue to struggle with this. We don't have it put together. And when we realize that, we don't have to be so surprised when it shows up. We don't have to hide it. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to struggle with this in isolation. But instead, we can be honest about where we're at. And we can be vulnerable with each other. And we can lean on each other for help and for healing. I mean, what would it look like for the church to be the place where people knew there was help when they were sick? That when my wrist breaks, I know I'm not going to the gym. I'm not going to Taco Bell. I'm going to the hospital. I'm going where I know there's help. What if the same thing was true of the church? When marriages fall apart, 
right, when jobs fall to pieces, when people end up in a brand new country where they don't know a single person, when the doctor calls and it's cancer, when lives fall to pieces, what if people knew the place you go when you're sick is the church? What would that look like? What would that look like if we acted more like a hospital rather than a health club? Sin is a sickness that lingers. That's what the fine print of chapter 7 tells us. And the Spirit of God guides us through our treatment plan, administering doses of the gospel to our souls. And at the end of the road, the truth is, there is a great hope that awaits us. Because one day, we will be delivered from these bodies of death. Sin is a sickness that lingers. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, a day is coming when this disease will be fully eradicated. And experiences like Romans 7 will be nothing more than a fading memory of a time before we lived in the fullness, in the joy, in the peace of God. And that's what we have to look forward to. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that that even though sin is a sickness that we all do still continue to struggle with, we thank you that because of the work that you've done that we don't have to be perfect that we don't have to have things put together, that we have hope in you and that the good news of Jesus Christ, that that your gospel continues to administer healing to our souls, that it's medicine that we rely on, that we continue to take and that in it we find hope and we find health and we find healing. Jesus, help us to lean into you and help us to be a place where it's okay to be sick because we know there's help here. In your name, amen. Thanks for that word, Trev. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. I filled up uh, about a page or so of notes just working through all that. And just thanks for the encouragement, Trevor. Thanks for that great layout of how uh, chapter 7 fits in the whole of all what's previously been laid out in Romans. That was just really well put together. Thank you for that, helping us to see more and more the big picture of Romans and how it works together because that was a tough passage and it's hard, difficult to understand. I think, I know for many years when I was reading through it, I was like, what's going on here? But then realizing that, wow, this is actually true of my own experience more and more and how God has used that. So, brother, thank you for coming up and give us that good, clear word this morning. Great job, man. I couldn't help but think, um, writing down some things as we were going along, um, and Trevor hit this so well, and so this is literally simply just a coming alongside his message. Um, He laid out the word, and that's what's definitely most prominent here. But what are some more of the keys? I just had a conversation with one of you here this morning who came in here limping, struggling. And to Trevor's point, this is the place to be. This isn't the health club where you might be, or may sometimes you struggle a little, being a little intimidated or maybe even going, you know, like kind of like I am right now. Um, Man, I played basketball on Thursday, and it was a struggle. 
But you know what I mean, right? Is there's a hesitancy to maybe step inside of a gathering of a church or even to get known in a small group setting, whatever it may be. It's sometimes we have those thoughts because sin has done a work in us. But this is the place to be. This is the place to be. What are some things to help you in your battle that Trevor's so well laid out and this struggle with this sickness of sin? What are some helps that God has given us along the way? Well, we're going to get that next week for sure in this declaration in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. For there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What's going to help us further in just adding to what Trevor already said? And the sickness that still lingers is to know the truth about it. It is in you. Not to deny it. First John would say, if you, you deny that there's sin, then you're a liar. Know the truth about it and what it seeks to do. It's perverse. It twists things. It deceives you. To believing the promises of who we are and what we possess in Christ. For those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a son of the Most High God. You are a daughter of the Most High God. You are His. And we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. And what you possess in Christ are the riches of redemption. Everything that we possess now and the not quite yet and what we're going to possess forever, they are all yours in Christ Jesus. Your hope is secure. Your future is certain. Three, obey God's word. By faith, obey God's word. And know that you will experience greater and better pleasures. Sin deceives, thinking you're going to get some sort of pleasure out of it. That's why you do it. It's an affection thing in your heart. That's why you do it, because you think it's going to give you something better than what God has prescribed or what he has to offer. By faith, don't believe that lie, that holiness is a lot more fun than sin. He gives greater pleasures and greater joys When you obey his word. Fourth. Hold on to the rescuer. Who has and will forever bring your final deliverance. Hold on to Christ. Cling to him. Hold on to him. He's going to bring you through it all the way to the end. He will complete that which he started in you. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Everyone together, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, he's the one who gives us the victory. Christ is the one. He is the one. He is the main event. He is the number one in this church. He is the head of the church. Hold on to the rescuer. He's going to take you all the way. Fifth, repent and keep going forward together.
as Trevor so well laid out, we do this together. The cross is behind me, and in that shadow, there's no shame. We're all in a battle. We're all wrestling. We're all going through it. Confess, repent, and keep going forward. And we do it together. It's no wonder that God has given us in his word, which we did this morning in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, forgive us our trespasses, as we also forgive those who trespass against us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has it hardwired into our walk and following after Jesus that our life is a life of confession and repentance. And we keep moving forward. And we, as we do it together, are always offering grace. Are any of you in a place this morning where... Maybe the deacons are going to be here on the side. I'll be up front after service. If you're in a place where you just need to be prayed over, prayed through a situation, confess something, just get it off of your chest. This is the place to be. The hospital is here. May the Lord give you and may you experience your deliverance and your freedom, even in the battle when it's hard. Some of you are addicted to some things. But this is where the battle is won. Here in the hospital, this is where we're reminded of our remedy week after week, day after day in our small groups, in our relationships with one another all throughout the week as we do life together. We're reminded of the remedy in the gospel. So come get some of that gospel healing again this morning as we get ready to sing. Let's stand.